I'm Dima Ballin, and this is The Rear Window. Buonanotte, un cavolo! Ma come si può dormire qua? Ma che strilli, vecchio matto? Ma che diavolo vuol dire essere proprio sinceri? Hai sentito che ha detto il falcaccio? È ora di farla finita coi simboli, il richiamo della purezza, l'innocenza, l'evasione. Te li porti i piselli. I piselli? Ah, perché la signora aveva chiesto dei piselli quando derivava, però gli ho un buon segno. No, no, lascia andare i piselli, grazie signora. Se ha bisogno la Ma che cos'è questo lampo di felicità che mi fa tremare, mi ridà forza, vita? Vi domando scusa, dolcissime creature, non avevo capito, non sapevo. Com'è giusto accettarvi, amarvi. E come semplice, Luisa, mi sento come liberato. Tutto mi sembra buono, tutto ha un senso, tutto è vero. Ah, come vorrei sapermi spiegare, ma non so dire. So I'm sitting here with Jean-Paul Ouellet and David Kleiler, and uh, this episode came about in a very interesting way, because... We just had a special screening of Fimini's Eight and a Half, which was organized by uh, an old friend of ours, a friend of David's. She'll, she'll kill me if I say old friend. She's not old. To head off your impending wake, apparently. Right, David? Uh, you want to Maybe. Tell us I really story? don't know this story. I got plunged into this in Medius Race, sort of like the, some of the people who were in the audience the other night to watch uh, Fimini's Eight and a Half uh, got plunged in not knowing what they were walking into because uh, it's not an easy film to get through. But yes, as far as I know, yeah, I was co-opted from my wake, which was supposed to go on on Monday night, uh, co-opted by having this uh, preemptive screening uh, of, of the film that not only do I think is the greatest film ever made, but also a film that is so much a part of my life, both on a personal and professional level, that, okay. So we, um, that's how the context in which we saw this film. So... so So it was actually, David was planning a mock wake so he could be there to see his wake. And, uh, oh, is that what uh, it is? Yeah, so our friend Ellen <laughs> Gittleman, who's a wonderful PR person and, and well-known in the film industry locally, um, decided that uh, she wanted to do something different. So she contacted the Coolidge Corner Theater, who happily provided us with a screening room. And we switched our screening from our normal place to the theater to surprise David. And it was a surprise. But, um, well, I know you really relate to the chaos of this film, yeah. uh, whereas it plays absolute havoc with my ADHD. I find it hard to follow, even though I love it. But Well, one of the multiple things, I mean, over the years, I've seen the film, God knows, 15, 20 times, and each time I see it or I think some other way of thinking about it, the film is hard to follow. Almost everybody I know the first time around, oh, God, I have no idea what's going on. And some... Because the film is an incredible, no matter what, even on the first time around, it's an incredible extravaganza, visually imaginative. There are scenes that are just like, you can see, I mean, Fellini's Italian. You can see that he knows Italian opera. So the film is a big series of incredible set pieces that you may not know what they mean or how they, uh, they flow, but they're just incredibly imaginative. So it's a, it's a treat for the eyes, if not the brain, on the first viewing. But what is interesting, I'm a very big thing in terms of form and content being the same. One of the things in the multiple times I've seen the film, this time around, even more so, I noticed that it's impossible to 
sometimes to follow what the subject of a shot is. And just as the central character <coughs> has trouble focusing, there are a lot of uh, scenes that he's in where he's talking to somebody, somebody's asking him, how many scenes am I in, that kind of thing, and he'll get distracted very easily. And But if you take a look at a lot of the shots in the film, the camera, within a single shot, that, the uh, assistant director of the film had to do an, an amazing job sort of choreographing all of this. That it's like the camera has ADD. You don't know what the subject of the shot is in lots of scenes. So that if you have trouble following the film, it's like you and the film are one. Uh, the film has trouble following itself. Uh, yeah, exactly. But in a very conscious way, I think, in the film. And it does relate to the central character who is simply uh, the, the basic situation of eight and a half. Here's this guy, Bellini, who made what in the mind of many people, certainly in its own time, the Dolce Vita, a lot of people called it the greatest film ever made. And here he is, what am I going to do next? And he's made, you know, La Dolce Vita is a major statement of a state of contemporary society and all that kind of thing. Oh, how am I going to top that? And you have a, uh, it's a very existential kind of situation. The central character says, what, and he has, he doesn't know what it is, but because other people want something from him, he's being pressured. The film opens up, he's having a nervous breakdown, he's in a health spa. Mm -hmm. And one of the great things, you know, there's so many wonderful things about the film. So what he does do, uh, he tries to, he has to get away in order to clear his mind so he can focus on the film he's supposed to be developing. And he get, brings all the chaos of his life with him. So shot after shot, scene out of, after scene, reflects chaos uh, rather than, uh, so if, uh, if you have ADD, as I do, yeah, you, the <laughs> film, and the central character, in the style of the film, all, all, all merge. It's all, well, it's yeah, all one. In, in many ways, his need for uh, rehabilitation, for contemplation, for getting away from it all, is constantly either invaded at the at the spa, either actually or mentally by characters basically assaulting him. And they're all asking for, A, the relevance of the movie, the purpose of the movie, and the purpose for their lives. Yes, and not only their own lives, but also in terms of their own character, and that, that all right. intermixes here. But he adds to it himself. That's what, you know, here he is, for reasons that are, make zero sense, he brings his mistress um, uh, to the place. His mistress is there, and he can't spend the time with her that she wants him to spend with him. So his wife calls up, she says, oh, yeah, come on along, yeah, come along, I'd love to see you, Louisa. What 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 planet are you on? Well, but it, once again, remember his mistress comes and he hides her away in a yes. little hotel, so nobody knows she's there. So he feels foolishly that he's in control. So it's all right to to invite his wife, even though his mistress is there, because he's got it all separated right. and and he supposedly is in control of it. And in terms of again the the ADD thing that, that Dima brings up, I mean it, he's adding more chaos. In other words, rather than giving him, creating a world where he, it gives him an opportunity to focus, uh, he's creating a world which is going to make it impossible for him to do anything. And one of the great things I feel, um, anybody who knows me knows that my, my basically my room, my bedroom, which is also where I work, is sort of a mess. And the room that he has at this health spa is really production headquarters. And his bed that he sleeps in is filled with stills, or people he might be casting and things like that. Everything, even in his own room at the spa, 
is chaos. Uh, I mean, clearly there's a, you know, this does not fit that far outside of, of uh, a lot of things that were going on. Not that far from any more barriers the Seven Seal, where the knight keeps on looking for, um, looking for some sort of solution um, to you know, the meaning of life. In this case, uh, there, well, there is death in the film, but the, uh, in this case, all the way through the film, here's this guy whose life is in utter disorder. And he keeps on going to, like, the church, it has no answer. Certainly his, his, his producers have no answer. Uh, people who try to help him, he rejects. And, of course, what he does, talk about the women in the film, of course he's going to go to the woman in white, uh, who's going to be the one. Yeah, there's a great scene where he, it's a fantasy scene, where she's there in his room. Of course, she hasn't arrived there in, in, the, in, the, in the town yet. She's, she's stroking her breast. She says, I want to create order. I want to create order. And uh, So is this Claudia or Rosella? No, it's Claudia. Uh -huh. uh, Rosella has another point. Ro uh, this woman, Rosella, is the sister of um, Guido, the Marcello Mastriani character's uh, uh, wife. Uh, she plays an important role in the film, right. which I focus more on this time around than before. But uh, Claudia is the woman. You know, remember at the beginning of the film, where he's at the, you know, that old, again, the first scene that really illustrates this ADD thing, where what's the camera doing? Who are, who, are we, um, who are we focusing on here? And then he's in line to get his the waters at the, uh, at the health spa. Mm -hmm. And of course, Claudia, the woman in white, uh, comes through the portals. And then he sees her as the woman who's giving him the water. And of course, we get cut to reality, and it's just a very plain woman uh, that is giving him uh, the water. And so therefore, he, he keeps on looking for something outside of himself to, to find some sort of way of bringing order to the disorder of his life. And, uh, and of course, there isn't any, any you know, the, uh, what is it, the cardinal says, there is no salvation outside the church. Mm. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's done, that, that doesn't work. Uh, well, he may and, be saying there's no salvation outside film. Yeah. Well, there is here, um, again, not unlike in some of, like, Ingmar Bergman's The Magician, which this bears some uh, resemblance, uh, the, the act of creativity and the de deity. I mean, there is a kind of way the creative artist and the creation, all that kind of stuff, is sort of linked there. And there's no question about it. We have here in this world... Certainly, it's a world Fellini's created. Because this is called Fellini's eight and a half. Technically, that's true. Everybody calls it eight and a half, but really, it's called Fellini's eight and a half. He had made seven feature films, and then he did like a, a, a sort of a, a short film for a, 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 a film like Boccaccio seventy, I think. Mm -hmm. and it was like an anthology film with three right. different directors from Italy, and he did um, something there. But so this is not like. Fellini's eight and a half does not, um, and it's sort of like Mozart's or uh, Beethoven's fifth, Beethoven's ninth. It's like Fellini's eight and a half. With, without the word Fellini, the eight and a half doesn't make sense. Right. It, it's not even a title. It doesn't relate to anything. And it's like, you say Beethoven's, uh, Beethoven's symphony number no. nine, you right. do that. Lots of people wrote symphony number no. nine, but you have to say Beethoven. Right. And this for is it with, to, to have context. Well, nobody's done... Um, but in, the, in this case, although generally, if people say Symphony Number no. Nine, people kind of assume it's Beethoven. All yeah, but once again, you have to. There, there are hundreds of Symphony Number no. Nines, and there's the that's kind of, why. Even if you look at Beethoven's work, 
it's Symphony Number no. Nine, and then there's usually some subtitle to it. Yeah, but Whether there's there's one or, great yeah, symphony. Like a, in, yeah. How did um, how did Fellini's kind of uh, free flowing stream of consciousness style evolve from his uh, more traditional neorealist films? Was so funny. was it so half the yeah. the the kind of breakout film in now, that respect? Why? How? Now, there's always been elements that are consistent, even in his films. Fellini started with Italian neorealism, and there's a character in Eight and a Half who is it represents his mentor, who was. The, the great filmmaker of neorealism, Roberto Rossellini, his name's Canocchio, mm. and uh, in Eight and a Half, uh, at one point the guy's trying to give him advice. He's just there helping out, trying to help out, helping uh, the, the Guido character, the Fellini stand-in, uh, help him out on, this, on getting his ideas together to make a film. And uh, Guido berates him in the hallway, and he and Canocchio cries. Well, wasn't Canocchio the character who? Shows up at the spa, who's in a similar state. Yeah. So, um, or is that is that one of the uh, associate producers of the thing? Because at the end of the film, at the press conference, the chaotic mm -hmm. press conference, uh, just before the fake suicide, he looks at Canocchio and says, "I'm sorry, you were the best of them all." And of course, he was. You know, Russell never went into fantasy, and Fellini did. But you can see the elements in Fellini's, like, like for example, you can't, if what, there's one thing in Fellini's films that's consistent, whether it's a realistic mode or a, the fantasy mode, the circus and processions are constant uh, in, in Fellini's films. And after all, Nostrata, one of the great films, and it's extremely in the, you know, in the, in the neorealist tradition, uh, but the central character is the clown, and the, the, it's a circus strongman. And so Fellini's always um, the idea of the cinema, the circus being something not only of the fantastic, but also of the grotesque. And I'll never forget taking my son when he was six years old to go to see uh, Fellini's documentary, The Clowns. And he was six years old, and I was reading him the titles. Of course, I was very proud of my son. He said to me, Dad, you can only read these to me. The images tell me everything. And whatever. But uh, there was always that element. And why Fellini went to the more extreme fantastical, I mean, it's, there's that mixture in La Dolce Vita, then it goes on pretty much continuously after that. That mixture, uh, one of the things you mentioned, Dima, about you have in this film, uh, it's not just a question of whether you have ADD and can't follow a linear plot. Within a single scene, you can have fantasy, flashback, reality, all in the same scene. Mm -hmm. uh, and for Fellini, they're all in, in, in dream. They're all, it's all like one for him. Now, it's interesting to me that, you know, reality, fantasy, future, past, they all kind of flow into each other uh, sometimes in the same scene. But yet his dream scenes kind of stand apart. He, he films them as dream scenes. And you know they're dream scenes because usually the sound changes uh, there's a recurring kind of sound of wind uh, uh, th throughout again, his films, actually. And a, and a very distinct form of lighting that's separate. Yes, it's so. more diffuse. It's kind of, it's, it's more dreamlike. Yeah, exactly. It, so it, he's it's telling more, you. It's more of a classical 
style of shooting and look and oh, and even you know it's it's the the old italian villa type of thing as opposed to in modern day it's a chaotic messy italian villa so he's but telling the, you when he when he goes to the to the dream scene much like a dream he takes out the elements that make it chaotic so that we can concentrate on the symbolic elements um yeah you're probably i mean it goes later on uh, there are only, I think, only two clear-cut dream scenes. The sequences. Op- sequences. The opening one. The one where he's the little boy and Claudia is peeing in the bed and telling him, that's one. The other one is the harem sequence, which is... That's not a dream. That's a fantasy. Oh, okay. Because don't forget, what he does there, his wife is aware that the mistress is there in the same same place, sitting, of course, apart. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, uh, she... Um, uh, and he, he, at least the visual thing, he's looking at this, he pulls his glasses down and looks, and this is an as if. What would happen? It sort of was like a fanny. Uh, what he would want to have happen. Remember they get together, the mistress and the wife get together, and they kiss and embrace. Oh, you look so wonderful, that kind of thing. Right. It's his fantasy, not a dream, because he's not asleep at that point. The dream sequences are clearly at the beginning of the film where we have being pulled down to reality by his producer, uh, you know, and being feeling entrapped in the car. And then uh, then he gets pulled right, then he wakes up, in, you know, in his bed, and he's, you know, he's like, oh, he has that big gasp of gasping for air. And then the next one is when he's in the, in his bed with um, uh, his mistress, and it's his mother who's writing on the wall, and then you go to the dream sequence, it has all the elements of surrealism because he has he's watching his father you know going into his grave and his father, mm-hmm. uh, that kind of thing, and then uh, one of the great pieces of, of like like he goes to kiss his mother and then we look and then all of a sudden you cut to and he's kissing his wife. But one of the great things about this film, and also the frustration of anybody who's trying to make sense of it, like we don't know that the woman he's kissing, you know, who replaces his mother is his wife. She hasn't been introduced as a character yet into the film. And yet, hmm. how are we going to retain this? Not until we don't see um, Anuka May for another forty-five minutes in the film. But once again, I think it's it's powerful enough that the the mother goes to kiss him on the cheek, and he goes to kiss her on the mouth. Yes. And then and cut then to. we cut to the side, and we suddenly realize what's really going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, the the, <laughs> the the eternal mother character is really important here to to his whole life. Oh yeah, that's the whole thing that the. Well, getting back to how all this started, one of the things that our friend uh, Judy Laster said, Ellen says, you need to be cared for. She's me. Mm-hmm. Um, all the wake freaking her out aside, I didn't hear that until today. Mm-hmm. The idea that what you have here is all these women who are basically caring for him. Uh, and you get to the harem scene, which is a reprehensible scene politically in the days of Me Too. I mean... It's a hard, and it's, even it's more, a fantasy. It's okay. What is that? Is it? It's fun. No, well, yeah, it is. That's it is. It's, it is a fantasy, <laughs> and, and and it's also a, a self-deprecating one. Yes, uh, the whole idea that uh, after a certain age, the woman, the women must go upstairs, um, even to have made it. The filmmaker knew it was evil. Yes. And it's not as if it was made by. It's not a misogynist making the movie. No, it's a man who understands this. That Which this is really wrong. doesn't come out very well in the film version of the musical remake of this nine. 
It just doesn't come out. Uh, it comes out much more misogynistic in the film mm. than I think it does in Eight and a Half. Uh, I happen to see again one of my women in white years ago took me to Broadway to see Nine with Raul Julia, mm. and okay, um, and I loved it as on Broadway with Raul Julia playing the uh, Guido character, but uh, the film I didn't like. Uh, the play you didn't like. I liked the play. I didn't like the film. Uh, film of the play. Oh, the film of the play. I see. Yeah, even though Penelope Cruz is great uh, in the thing, but uh, the and of course this film, less for audiences and more for filmmakers, has been the source. Alex in Wonderland by Paul Mazursky, um, all that jazz. Bob Fosse's all that jazz. Right. Woody Allen's Stardust Memories. Peter Greenaway did a did a did a thing on this, and uh, like okay, and of course it is. It's classic. It's, uh, you're a writer. You know what writer's block is like, mm-hmm. Filma- you know, filmmaker block. Is what, is, you know, on one end of the very basic level here, it's a male menopause film. I, I, I found it really interesting as a screenwriter to sit back and, and, and watch um, so Guido's screenwriting pa- <laughs> partner hates the film. Yes. And hates his ideas and doesn't understand what he's trying to say. But the interesting thing is Fellini wrote this with three screenwriters who right. all had worked with him before. They had written La Strada. They had written um, La Dolce Vita. They had worked with him. So they knew him. And not only did they know him, his style and what he was about was they obviously helped make this a much more complex story than even one man could have done. So making fun of the screenwriter character in the film is fine, but these screenwriters worked beautifully with him to create all of this, which actually does all make sense. What well, is so funny because a lot of things, his name's Domier, I think, and he, he's punctuated throughout the film, but all the I things, just like the character, the mistress of, of, of the guy uh, who's writing her dissertation on something about the emptiness of man and the, you know in, in drama that kind of thing. Barbara mm-hmm. Steele. Uh-huh. Barbara Steele. Barbara <laughs> Steele. Yeah. Barbara Steele. Yes. That's a great. She's great. I mean, she's so empty-headed. She looks yeah. amazing in this film. Though. She does. Yeah. She's great. She's oh. And um, but no, here she is, utterly with uh, Gloria. I think her name. But master's thesis. I'm going to make this significant thing about the meaning of modern life, and I do it in a master's thesis. That kind of thing. <laughs> And uh, Barbara, if you're listening to this, uh, I love you. <laughs> <laughs> we all love you. Uh, but but Domier is the one. The very things that critic. I mean, even as, as successful as La Dolce Vita was, uh, people did say, "Oh, you're being pretentious." And a lot of the stuff that would have been said about Fellini, the, the, the woman in white, all these ideas you have, and all that kind of stuff. So some of what Domier says is stuff that had already been said about Fellini's less pretentious films. Right. Although I have to admit, La Dolce Vita. Is pretentious. Yeah. <laughs> but you're you're right. Uh, I mean, fundamentally, Guido Anselmi is something of an asshole. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And he portrays himself that way. And even the other, the, in La Dolce Vita, the Marcello Merrick character, uh, Mastroianni character, the journalist, a man of talent who squandered his potentiality. Uh, by going to tabloid journalism. Right. Uh, there's a kind of a way that, within the framework of, of, of there's a self-awareness. The, the central character is hardly idealized. He's a jerk. He's rude to people. 
it's not as if the, the world around him isn't also bad, sort of bad. So when you get to the harem scene, uh, yeah, you have it earlier with the same set as for the Asanisimasa scene. And some of the people from the Asanisimasa scene, which are the women who helped, helped him grow up. Well, once again, we're looking into his, his fantasy has a lot to do with his past. Yes. That's what I say. Is a lot of these things, past, present, future, uh, uh, fantasy, dream, they all sort of blend. Well, yeah, I mean... Well, no, except they, for they, the dreams, though, and this is what I still can't figure out. Why does he set his dreams apart, whereas everything else kind of flows into... As a member of the audience, though, uh, there, uh, I do know... Uh, I used to teach this film, uh, and I do know that sometimes half my students at the, uh, uh, really thought it was a real suicide at the end. Mm -hmm. um, and that it's not a question of, of course I thought I knew better but it's interesting the way the film gets perceived did he really kill himself uh, yes and and so I think that uh, again yeah I can figure out a few more like you, you can see these differences but for example I mean the surrealist element we have the flashback of the Saragina scene okay and where he mixes all kinds of styles in that scene remember uh, Saragina being the large woman. Another motif that goes through all of Fellini's films, large-breasted women. Yes. And uh, the Saragina is just like prepubescent fantasy. Uh, mm -hmm. Well, I won't go into that. The exotic uh, belly dancer, stripper-type yeah, character. La Rumba, Saragina. Yes. Anyway, but what is interesting, when then, then he does that, which, of course, is like exaggerated. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you go... To the scene where the priests come out to get him on the beach, and you go to almost like you know, it's like a Buster Keaton comedy, chasing on the beach. All fast forward, mm -hmm. then you go back to the uh, the school, the Catholic school where he is, and he goes to confession. And one of the I didn't catch this until the fifth time I saw the film. When he goes into the confession, the confession's in one part of the room. When he comes out of the confession, uh, the confession's in another part of the room. And I, I poked Eric uh, the other night, mm. take a look at this one, you'll catch it maybe. But what is interesting, it's the, the idea of the, that going to your stylistic thing, even in that quote flashback, you have all the things of surreal, um, of spatial dislocation. And that's, you know, I, I don't attach any big meaning to that, except for the fact that from a cinematic standpoint, he's, he's working with dislocation. We don't have a strong sense of place. Well, yes. I mean, there are some, in, in looking, you know, when you say, here he is distinct, and I think he needed to be distinct between fantasy, memory, and realities, also so that by the end of the film, it could all merge. Because in many ways, the end of the film is the merging of all of these elements into this circus event. But my point is, he's not distinct with anything other than his dream sequences. Um, I mean, he does the same thing in Juliet of the Spirits. Uh, there are two really beautiful dream sequences in there that stand apart. And he tells us they're dream sequences, whereas, you know, her fantasies, especially at the end of the film, like all those characters, the nuns, you know, the figments of her imagination, they all kind of blend into the narrative as though they're reality. And I'm just curious if that has any meaning. Maybe not. I think it's the reverse. This is a man who is... Having a breakdown. Yeah. And that there are times when the world is real. 
and there are times when the world is so real it's giving him more pressure. This and he's trying to figure out who he is, what he needs to do next, and what must he do to make all these people making demands on him happy. Because, you know, because the film, one of the people said to me, Eight and a Half, you know, is a documentary. It's the documentary of a mental breakdown in a creative person. Um, I'm glad you sort of said that about... about oh, the, yeah. The, and that, yeah, of course, it's not a documentary. It's attempting to doc, document that, though. So the film is, you know, completely what, you know, one of the things that's one of my favorite things, a point of view film. Because there's nothing that goes on uh, in the film that goes outside of the consciousness of our central person. And and that's why I say it's like an objective corrector. The chaos in the film, for, I, I love that when you let off with ADD, because I can't imagine... I mean, he can't focus, we can't focus, and it, it, we, we're, we're, we're plunging into the chaos of a person who's going through a mental breakdown and trying as hard to try to pull it all together again. The, the way the camera works, the shifting focus, the, 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 even the confusing, I think, and deliberately confusing blending of reality, flashback, uh, fantasy, dream, yeah, why are that? Why are those uh, scenes you talk about separate? I really don't have an answer for that. It's just the fact that maybe you know, and they happen earlier in the film. After that, the film gets a little more. You know, I'm going to use the word muddled. No, uh, it's not. You know, it's not a muddled film. Uh, chaotic. Yeah, but chaotic. Yeah, and oh. you get to. You know, it works on so many levels. Even the mixture of voices, you talk about all these people coming up and asking him questions. Remember, it's sort of interesting. It's such a, uh, I don't know whether Truffaut would have had this in mind when he did Day for Night. Somebody asked him what a director's life is like. And he says, people always are asking you questions. And uh, you have this here in spades in Eight and a Half. I was thinking of mm -hmm. Day for Night, that one point in Day for Night. I was thinking of that while watching this film, where all the people, you're right, coming up to him, wanting answers. Well, and actually, there's an old tradition for film directors. Make a decision, right or wrong, but make a decision. And this is a character who is a director who it's impossible for him to do that. Well, that's why it's so key. The character that is, I focused on a little bit more this time around the film, even though I knew her function before, because you know, my friend Erica always uses that line to me. Uh, when he goes up there, they make a visit out to the site. And of course, we know the, 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 it's a, Phallic, you know, phallic imagery 101 with right. the space launching pad that's next to the beach. Okay, I get it. It's when Wells ate that. Uh, well, but it's, it, it, it's also a little reference to the big top yeah. as well. Because yes. you do have the circular ring around it, and it does have the, the idea of yes. powers of a, of a big, big tent. And of course, you know, even at the end when they're, well, when you get to the last sequence, which combines all of the elements. But no, when he goes up there, and one of the interesting things, there is a voice of reason in the film. And it's not of the people who are trying to advise him, but the voice of reason in the film is uh, his wife's sister, Rosella. Right. And she, he goes to her and says, what the fuck, what am I going to be doing? And, she, and her big line is, oh, look, Guido, you have to choose, which he can't do. And then during the harem scene, she's there in the harem scene, even though she's not part of the harem. Right. She's up in the balcony. Maybe that's because she's over 30. I don't know. Mm -hmm. She's up there. And the camera keeps cutting to her just looking down at the proceedings. 
Right. And the camera will stay on her face. And what we're supposed to do as members of the audience, what could she possibly think? But she's already been the voice of reason earlier in the film. And so her character is sort of, um, you know, is interesting in the film, uh, you know, until we get to the end. But even with the chaos, it works in so many ways. Not only throughout the film, we have people speaking in multiple languages. You'll have conversations going on. Questions will be asked in English, the answer will be given in Italian. You know, that, that kind of thing. That happens several times throughout the film. But when you get to the press conference, which is chaos complete, completely, and you have that one woman who says, he has nothing to say, you know, that, that kind of thing. But you've got about four or five different languages going on there at the press conference. And throughout the film, in the earlier way, that, as you say, he's being asked questions all the time. He's being bombarded with nothing but questions, and he's got no answers whatsoever. Actually, there's a wonderful scene that I love is when early on Guido goes down to the railroad station and he's waiting for somebody. And the and the train pulls up and and a woman and a little I think a little child or a dog get out and they're dark. Yes. And there's a priest and they're all somewhat fuzzy. So we cut to Guido. He takes off his glasses. He cleans them. He puts them back on. But nothing improves. His view does not improve at all. Oh, that's and then the train starts. Obviously, then we the train moves and it reveals the fact that his mistress his is mistress there. is there, and obviously she that her outfit everything about her is this exaggerated um, fantasy of a mistress, and especially when you contrast her to his wife Lucia. <laughs> yeah, Louise Louise is uh, like thin and beautiful, uh, but also. Much more plain, much more um, what one, much more like his mother in many ways. Well, that's why they had that cut earlier in the film uh, before we get a chance to see her. And of course, you know, in the old imagery, these are women, even even though during the harem scene, they, they revolt against him for the, if you're over 30, go upstairs. Then they come back to comfort him. Hey, he could be Donald Trump. Uh, the... Uh, um, <laughs> uh, no, I, 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 uh, no. Uh, but uh, on the other hand, he, well, wait in his, in his brain, in his fantasies, he could be yeah, and, or Donald Trump could be Guido. Either way, but yeah. that's a fantasy. And in that, that scene, that's the thing is a total fantasy. He fantasizes himself. I'm this great guy coming and bringing all these gifts and stuff like that. Uh, and then they're all. I mean, this is total fantasy. You know. And it's, this is where that, you know, he's one of these brilliantly constructed scenes. I just, the film is such a phantasmagoric of just like, oh my God, creative. I mean, like, it's such an incredible work of imagination. Hmm. Uh, I mean, that's just like, just not to, I don't know what, what the hell's going on here in this film, but I love looking at it anyway. <laughs> just, you know, like, well, but I mean, actually, the pieces actually do fit. They do. Know? They do fit. And, and yes, it takes you a couple of viewings before it, you start to really go, aha, aha, aha. Obviously, everybody's flummoxed by the ending, which is takes a long time to figure out. And and part of this is understanding his madness as a filmmaker, but it's also his madness as a man dealing with 
women. His his way of dealing with men is pretty much to berate them until they go away, or ignore them until That's they go away. That's why the big away. thing with the Rossellini character, uh, you were the best of them all. I'm sorry. Right. Uh, and of course, you know, get to, you through the ending of the film, you have to go back to uh, again. How do you? Pro how does a member of an audience sitting through the film the first time make any sense of it at all? You go to the Asanisi Masa scene where they have this mind reader, okay? Right. And then he comes up, and he's a medium, and he elicits what's on your mind, and she writes it down, Asanisi Masa. Right. And of course, it's a kind of English teacher kind of thing. You take the, uh, the three S's, and it, where there's a repeated uh, vowel, uh, you take away the S and the repeated, and you come up with anima, which is spirit or soul in Latin. And mm -hmm. okay, this is what our hero's lacking. But what is interesting, in the, um, in the, uh, at the end of the film, the, the film is dead. They're, they're, all, they're pulling down the set. It's over. Uh, he's committed creative, he's committed suicide creatively, if not um, personally. And it's all coming down. And then it's the guy who elicits the Asa Nisi Masa from him earlier in the film, an hour and a quarter earlier, it comes back. And it's back on again. There's no logical reason for that to happen. It's like the end of another stream of consciousness work is one of my favorites is James Joyce's Ulysses, where you end with 65, 70 pages of Molly Bloom rambling on. Mm -hmm. And her last words are, yes. There's no reason. The guy's a disaster. He's not made any kind of narrative arc. Well, let, I actually think there, there is something there. Okay. More than that. Okay, because go. let's put it this way. This thing is called Eight and a Half. This is Fellini's Eight and a Half movie. Prior to making this movie, he must have gone through hell. Obviously, success and excess had burned him. And he had to come up with this movie. Just the way, in reality, Fellini had to come up with the movie and Guido has to come up with the movie. Well, this is exactly there it. Are, and then three elements really... There are three elements at the end that make it work. The magic of magic, which is our, our magician, our mind reader character. The memory of being who he was, which is the little boy with the flute. Yes. And his wife, which is the spirit of his mother. So I actually think that the end of the movie is that he makes a decision, just like he shoots himself. He makes a decision, and they begin to make the movie called Eight and a Half. Well, that's, you're, you're right. It's an utterly Pirandellian structure. The movie that he was trying to make is the movie we see. Well, absolutely. That's exactly it. Eight and a Half is the film that he's trying to make. But I think he, but the trick is that he uses magical figures or important figures of who make up Fellini as the collision at the end that causes it to happen. It's so funny because everybody, you know, a lot of people say, not everybody, but a lot of people say they like early Fellini, it was closer to neorealism. Um, going back to the origins of film, there's, oh, the Melies and there's, uh, there's uh, Lumiere. I'm, unfortunately, in my own personal taste, I've always gone more to the Melies magic. <laughs> uh, and that's why at the end of being more a magician, where there's no reason uh, that anything's going to happen good to all these people. It's a mm -hmm. deus ex machina ending. And 
there's nothing logically in the film uh, that would help them, oh, we're going to get a chance to perform before the King of Sweden. Well, how did this happen? It's, just, it's like Molly Bloom's soliloquy, yes. This is, I mean, in many ways, one of the things that, you know, there are multiple things that move me about the film. But this is a, a, an incredible act of just saying yes uh, at the end. And what's interesting in, in the way you describe this, uh, there are really interesting things that go on in the last part because when he's talking about, oh, Louisa, I love you, I want to go back, his lips don't move. Mm. It's voiceover. But what Fellini does there is that she, he acts as if she, and her words, she, her lips do move in response as if she's heard what we're only getting in voiceover. Right. It's fascinating with how that. But when you get to the, get to back to the, the, the circus ring that's near the, um, uh, around the site, he, his parents are in white mm -hmm. and they join the circle. But he joined, he and his wife, Join the circle. Well, too. he drags his wife into the circle. <laughs> well, yeah, okay, fair enough. Okay, I don't want to be a part of this, but he's no longer the ringleader. And so, uh, what he, do you make of He is the ringleader. He is the of magician. Course. He is the flute, the, the little flute. Well, yeah, the kid. And he a, is the husband and father of the film. But again, one of the things, what do you make of the last image? Because you have, again, the kids in white. Mm -hmm. It's the same outfit he's had when we've seen the flashbacks of him. When it was in black. Yeah. And we have that. And so the last image we see, I mean, when people are like eight and a half. No, eight and a half is not the age of the kid in the, uh, in, in the, um, in the film. Right. Nor is it, as some people say, with all the phallic imagery, it's not the size of uh, Fellini's penis. Right. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, the well, you never know, David. But, we don't know. I, I, I never got around to measure actually, actually, I was going to add one interesting thing of the effect of this movie. And the character of the magician also started appearing in American films. Oh, did Think of Mickey One. Yes. The, 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 Two years the, later. The, the, the Asian artist yes. making the beautiful sculpture that helps make everything work. Now, think of another one. It's just, uh, Mickey One was actually generally considered the first American film in a disastrous in the box office to take into account what was going on in Europe with Fellini, Bergman, and the French New Wave. And then I'll pick another one. Nashville. A okay. magician on the three-wheel motorcycle. Yeah. Who wanders Good through analogy. the film. Yeah. That, no, I think, I, I think there were elements of this that affected other, other people, but I also think that there are elements of older filmmaking that influenced this. Yes. So. Oh, yes. That's why even with the scene on the beach, it makes it into a Keystone Cops comedy with the, with their, uh, you know, the, the fast motion kind of it becomes, even with the audience, the other that's why I always like watching movies with an audience. I heard the laughter when it gets really silly, the scene where mm. the, the priest come and get them on the beach and they chase them. It's you know, all, all fast motion like from a silent film. And he uses a, his, all of his bag of tricks as a filmmaker uh, mm. to make this film happen. And that, you know, the film is in its own weird way, magical. And it is certainly not in any easily apparent way logical. It is. It is logical, but it, no, is. it, it, it does everything it can to obfus yes. obfuscate it. And that's why those with ADD, what the hell is this thing I've sat through? And uh, the- um, Well, you told me you fell asleep the first time you saw the film. I, I admit that fully. <laughs> I, I gave up within half an hour. I said, it took you that long? I think it, I'm not sure I lasted that long the first time I saw it. I forget. I mean, I can't remember. But yeah. I do know 
then I, but I wanted to see it a second time, and then, okay, this is really good. And then the third time, it made sense. The fourth time, it hit me emotionally mm-hmm. without thinking of the meanings. I got into the problem with the central character. I got into uh, his own uh, anxieties, and, and I, I uh, you know, and of course, you know, I'm not going to go into this here, but everybody knows there are various women who've done reenacted the Roomba. <laughs> I mean, uh, the Asanisimasa sequence. Uh, several people in my life who know me, whenever they feel that I have stress, David, you need an Asanisimasa. I mean, there, there are all kinds of ways this film just sort of relates. So I get, you know, there's a way that finally I got the film without, you know, you know I mean, there's still some things I puzzle over. Uh, well, speaking of influences, um, you know, this was just a guess on my part, but the Czech film, the Czech New Wave film, Valerie and Her, Her Week of Wonders, which came yep. out, I think, only eight or nine years after this one, uh, the whole ending of that film, the whole mm-hmm. procession, the processions, the yeah. all sort the, of the, the people which are figments of her psyche. Yeah. In kind of a similar way. I, I'm just guessing that, you know. I, I, oh, I, I think I think that. Well, here we have an Academy Award-winning foreign film. We have to remember its influence was not only um, critical and to filmmakers and to audiences. I mean, it was new, a new way of screwing with the minds of an audience <laughs> in many ways. But it also opened up a whole new language, which actually La Dolce Vita and other films had already started to do. But this one does it so beautifully. It's so funny. Um the we weren't used to seeing non-linear English is a linear narrative mm. it is in its own scrambled way but after all these years where you know, I went to see I just um, saw uh, the night after I saw uh, uh, eight and a half again uh, annihilation and they scramble with the same elements and actually what I was saying let's go back to an old linear film <laughs> like mm-hmm. uh, uh, whatever but the influence the films had, either consciously or unconsciously in film narrative is, is incredible. Yeah. But experiencing it again the other night, I said, oh my God, the film still, film still feels fresh and challenging. Uh, and I personally, within the next week, want to go, <laughs> I'm going to sit down and watch it on a smaller screen and really just think about it as I go through. We're not going to do it. I've had three requests to do the film as part of a salon screening. No, no, no. And I said no. But two years from now, maybe. What I want to do is see it without subtitles. It's sort so of my eyesight. It was so great. I, 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 it was so great to watch it because you know I, I, I read about maybe I didn't bother to read most of the subtitles. You know, I, I didn't, there are certain lines like Rosella's conversations. Yeah, I read those, but I said I'm not going to bother. I know I know what they're saying. And so I was able to concentrate more just simply on looking at the film. Well, I actually, I, yeah, one of the reasons I want to see because you, you talk about the 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 mis the the mismatch in language, yeah, lip to lip to yep. voice. Uh, there's a whole batch of places, including Claudia, in the uh, yes. in the dark alley. Yes, and I don't think that's what it was. I think it was the the way the Italians record films, which well, is. Yeah. Move your mouth and we'll fill in the in, in the dialogue. Yeah, because there's, you know, JB, you can talk about this better than I can, but there's a tradition in Italian film of dubbing. Right. And so, but, and what Fellini would do was cast people for their faces and worry about the language later. Yeah, well, I'm sure. Well, I, I don't respond. think Barbara Steele was speaking Italian, even though her voice was coming out Italian. Well, you take Anthony Quinn, Richard Basehart, and La Strada. Give me a break. Right. No, <laughs> they're not. 
and it's sort of interesting. I, um, you know, I've seen Lestrada both dubbed and, um, and in, in, you know, subtitles. In original, subtitles. It's sort of interesting. There's a place, something as simple as chow. Wait a minute. They start saying goodbye. I can see the lips move. Right. But what comes out <laughs> is chow. And then you get to the dub version. Where it's, you know it's not Basart's voice, and like what you know what, and and, uh, and like oh my god, uh, it, it, well the that, Italian that is, is a convention of how of, of there Italian never was his voice. No, both both in the English version when okay. he was dubbed by somebody else, and in the Italian version when he was obviously dubbed by an Italian actor. Yeah, so there's no such thing as Basart's voice. voice in the film, <laughs> and that so that is you're right. It's a convention of of Italian filmmaking. Right. And, uh, but yes, I did. There were times when it seemed as if it were just Italian filmmaking, and there were times when it really seemed as if it were a specific effect that they wanted. It probably. And I'd, I, that, that's one of the things I love to go back and really look at. You know, you know, I, you notice the same thing in Antonioni films when when there are English speaking actors, Visconti films. I keep on thinking of with the elaborate camera work, that's, um, camera movement work that goes on in this film. I, I think of uh, uh, it being as intricate as some of the stuff that Orson Welles does in The Magnificent Ambersons and uh, uh, Citizen Kane, but also as intricate. Another film with Claudia Cardinale, Lucina Visconti's The Leopard, mm -hmm. the wedding scene. Uh, like, wait a minute, what's the camera doing here? And it's not that switching focus. But that the elaborate way that somebody had to really orchestrate what not to trip over the the cables and things like that, right? And of course, you have Claudia Cardinale in that film too. But isn't she a great woman in white though? God, she's just a great woman. <laughs> <laughs> and she's magnificent. I know. I know it's so funny. Uh, what was it with? Uh, I I think I only saw a cut version the first time I saw it of Once Upon a Time in the West. And then when I saw the uncut version, just within the last three or four years. I had forgotten the lovemaking scene between Henry Fonda and Claudia Cardinale. I said, what? How did he get a chance to do that? Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I certainly would remember it if I had seen it uh, uh, earlier. But no, and she's um, this fantasy thing, you know, a projection of, I mean, and, it, and again, not unlike where you get earlier in the film when he kisses his mother and then he, you, know, you cut to the kissing of, of his wife. Earlier in the film, you do get when he's there standing in line to to get his water. Claudia Cardinale comes through the portals, but we don't know who she is yet. She has not been established as, and it's not a fault in the film. It's just like okay, how how can one possibly make sense of this uh, on a first viewing? Well, they, both then and pretty much now, it's. My God, that's Claudia Cardinale. She looks like a goddess. And that's all it is. <laughs> I mean, she looks like a goddess. And in those days, she was a big international superstar. Yeah, you're probably she right. She was. And, and so, yeah, I might have, you and I might have noticed Claudia Cardinale. Well, it's just also like most people don't recognize Anouk Ahmed. But I, is this after A Man and a Woman? I think it's close to simultaneous. Okay. And so whether or not she was known... I mean, I do know... Because that made her an international face who, immediately. I knew who Nuka May was when I saw this film. I saw it first run. Right. Uh, I knew who she was. But it was Man and a Woman. See, at the other theater, the, the Justin Freed, you know, uh, uh, at Man and a Woman, it ran for two years here in Boston, Man and a Woman did. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, of course, it, it had similar kinds of, you know, success, you know, elsewhere. 
and uh, but not quite as much as in Boston. Two years, uh, and uh, the uh, I don't think anybody plays the film anymore. Um, uh, uh, it was it was this it was the love story, the Romeo and Juliet of its day. You know, it was contemporary to to that world. The the idea that I think um, the and of course Fellini does go on to make Juliet of the Spirits after this. But the Pirandellian aspect of the film, it's part of the reason I go back to that. That's how I personally, but the idea of the quality of thought that go, went into so much of the film. Mm. Uh, you had three screenwriters and things like that. It isn't, this is not like a Cassavetti film shooting it on the lamb. This film is incredibly well thought through. Well, but it's also three screenwriters who knew him intimately. Yeah. And I think that's important. It's not just screenwriters. These were guys, I mean, this is the, one of these guys wrote La Strada. One of these guys wrote La Duce Vita. I mean, these people knew him. And that, and again. Um, and also had grown up with the change that he was making as a filmmaker. Yeah, because he, he it, it, the first step, well, again, he always had an element of fantasy. There are moments in Magic Iberia. Hmm. Uh, uh, but nothing. Then he goes to La Dolce Vita, which is a series of, in many ways, set pieces. Uh, what do you do with the, the, the miracle scene in, in La Dolce Vita? And then, boom, then he goes into, um, uh, then he has this. And Amarcord is also just a wonderful blend of all these elements, it's, but it's mostly memory, and we right. know that memory distorts. Uh, this is like one of my favorite scenes in Amarcord, is when they have this whole mythos of the big ocean liner. Mm -hmm. And they all, all the people in the town go down to the beach to see the ocean liner, which is basically, you know, it was a cardboard ocean liner. But the water with all the waves is all trash bags. Right. Uh, and uh, and it's, just, it's just so wonderful that it exists. Uh, I mean, what Tennessee Williams is doing this too with Last Menagerie, the way memory can change things. Right. Oh, that's interesting. That's what he did in uh, Casanova too. Yeah. Yeah, for, yeah trash bags. Which is bags. my one film of his I don't like. <laughs> I kind yeah. of like Casanova. I I kind of liked it. Well, it I was, think he was making an ugly film, and it, it is ugly. Okay, yeah, he, he was purposely making an ugly film. <laughs> Would you say that uh, Eight and a Half is his most personal film, or is it Juliet of the Spirits, or are they just fundamentally different? Um, my take on that is that yeah, this is definitely. I mean, three screen brighters aside, this is, and we we know the relationship between Marcello Mastroianni and and um, and, and you know, Fellini. But uh, one of the one of my good friends who truly hates this film, he's a really great cineast. Uh, and he thinks this is probably the most overrated film in the history of film, <laughs> Jerry Perry. Although I have to say, it's interesting because I, th I think that both La Dolce Vita and Eight and a Half may be his two personal films. And it's funny because yeah. it's almost like Annie Hall and Manhattan being, for me, well, Woody Julia... Allen's most personal films yes. were made in a similar time and in a similar moment in their lives. Uh, and clearly Fellini did have self-doubt so he can portray himself as in Woody Allen does in Manhattan in, in Woody Allen's character in Manhattan is a schmuck mm -hmm. and and he portrays himself that way in La Dolce Vita his character there is also he's a journalist who goes to tabloid journalism but the character of remember the character Steiner right yes and 
And Steiner's the guy who, he has, um, anyway, he's a professor who believes in the potentiality of the central character. Right. Who doesn't believe in it himself. But then, of course, one of the great things, there's so many great things in the Dolce Vita. And then, but then what, what really does it to the character of, of Marcello Mastrelli in that film is when he finds out that Steiner has killed his wife and his children himself. Mm. That whole thing. I mean, it's an amazing in terms of lost potentiality. And we get to the last image of La Dolce Vita, where you have the woman in white across with the winds blowing and the dead sea monster there in the middle. And she's calling out to him, and he can't hear her, and he goes back to his life. That's a really haunting image. And so that to a certain extent, the idea of failed potentiality is definitely part of eight and a half. And even though we know Fellini achieved his potential. Uh, but it also may be the contrast between the end of each these two films. Yes. Because they're very different. I mean, they're yes. specifically different. Obviously, eight and a half has a much more joyous, successful ending, if you accept the fact that he didn't commit suicide, um, than, than La Dolce Vita, almost right. as if totally they belong together as two films about him. Well, I, I, on that, I really do agree. Uh, they're so incredibly uh, personal and autobiographical. And they both wear the same damn hat. <laughs> well, yeah, that's it. Everybody, Marcello in, in Fellini's hat is just so wonderful. I, um, Erica, who, who, who quotes a friend of mine, that uh, I she bought me a straw hat, but exactly the same as Marcello's hat. Right. And I know that I wore it to the racetrack in Saratoga, where they, her parents had a, a, a permanent seat there right on the, that, that level of Saratoga. Uh -huh. like, right, the, the, you, you couldn't go in without a coat and tie. Right. And, but I wore my, my, what she calls my Guido hat. Uh, <laughs> so there's, there's a kind of a way that maybe because the film is personal, it's not just, oh, what's this about out there? Partly because I get the character uh, in some way. But I think that Juliet of the Spirits is, you know, it's about his marriage more. It's not about his... No, but not about him. And he's an asshole, again, in, in that. But he, I obviously, the Juliet of the Spirits, um, I saw it within the after, when I think it was still working, I, I watched it again. Uh, but it's almost as if it, his heart, it's almost as if, okay, I did something for me, I can do something for you. The, it is... It you don't true. think it's about his guilt more oh, than I think, anything I else. Think, let's put it this way. I think the fact that Juliet was not in either of his major films is really important. That's interesting. That she, she's not the most beautiful woman in the world. I mean, she's a wonderful actress. She's amazing. Both, and she's adorable. Oh, yeah. But both, both La Dolce Vita and Eight and a Half are not about that, not about real women. They're about these fictions of women. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in fact, Good. the person who looks like his wife is his mother in, the, in, in Eight and a Half. So I do think that, yes, there probably is a, is a husbandly penitence in making Juliet of the Spirit. Yeah, that's where I would go with the film. I really do. Uh, and if, if the last time I saw the film, it felt that way more than when I earlier seen the film earlier. I said, yeah, okay, he's guilty. And he's been a bad husband. We know this. He's been a bad he husband. He felt a lot of guilt, too. Huh? He felt a lot of guilt in, in relation to... Well, he's Catholic. To, ...to his wife. He's also... I, <laughs> yes. One of the reasons I love... Well, that, that would be another question is, it, is Lucia his image of his true wife, real wife? 
or his or his guilt about his vision of his real life. That that, that uh, one of the things I, I in, in terms of guilt, one of the things I've noted over the years, I think I'm right about this. Um, you know, even though I don't practice Catholicism, you know, I am a Catholic. You know, once a Catholic, you're scarred for life. But I'm a Capricorn, and okay. Fellini is a Catholic Capricorn. Okay, I get it. You know, and it's, yeah, I get the film. No, but again, the subjectivity. I mean, I, I, one of the interesting things this time, I figured, you know, Dean was led me into talking about myself in terms of the film. But I think the film objectively stands up independently of my own personal feelings about the film. I'm just amazed at the film. Um, I thought, when I was talking to Eric about the film, you know, we both rag on Nat Green wanting his, his, his analysis of films totally objective, never, never subjective. Uh. Well, I mean, once again, one has, when one looks at this film is you've got five or six women and we talk about it being a, a mis misogynistic film. Each one of those women is portrayed as really honest and real. Whereas the one who is misogynistic is, is our main character. It's yes. not, we don't see them as objects or anything like that. They're actually reasonably real people. So, that, yeah, there is. Except in the, in the fantasy scene, yeah. harem scene. So well, no, but, but even in, in the, the way the fantasy scene structure, was three, it has its own three-part structure within it. But there's still the director out there creating that scene. So there is the character, and there is the director who's making the character seem this way uh, to us. It's like he is being a sort of a jerk. Right. So there, there, there is, I mean, yes, you can only go so far in saying Fellini and Guido in, in, um, uh, in, 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 in they're not because the director is any viewing of the film. Uh, see, the central character is self-absorbed, uh, bad with women. And uh, and actually bad with people. Mm -hmm. And uh, is that the way Fellini saw himself? And maybe or, or his or his buddy screenwriter said, "This is who you are." <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's very possible. People he, they were talking. They probably sat around in a room and go, "You know, do you really think I'm like this?" And they go, "Yes, yeah, sometimes you are." Okay. He says, "Okay, leave it in." Uh, yeah, that's that, a good that, way of really, I mean, on a very pragmatic level, that could easily be what, what, what we see on the screen. Right. Uh, and, and also, I think Fellini would have had the decision to talk to the people around him and say, tell me the truth, because that's what I'd like to film. I mean, there's so many ways of just, apart from the fact that it's just a phantasm, phantasmagoria of just images, like, oh my God. I mean, I can't think of a film, very few films have dazzled me in terms of their raw audaciousness. Mm. Uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey is one. What? What are you really doing here? I mean, it, it doesn't... And of course, whereas this film is lively, the music... Nino Rota's music is incredible in this film. Uh, but that... It's like, what the hell? You know, I keep on thinking of what it must have been like to go to a pitch session on either this film or say 2001 <laughs> A Space Odyssey. You're like, what? <laughs> and... Uh, the, uh, and You're out uh, of your damn mind. And... Uh, well, correct me if I'm wrong, but he didn't actually give the actors the script ahead of time, right? He he just told them their lines um, on the day of shooting. Is that right? I don't know. Because would, he didn't want them to, to know what's going to happen. He wanted that naturalness. That's You may be right there. I don't know that yeah. for a fact. I'm sort of counterintuitive for me uh, because um, it... <laughs> well, especially since it's part of the 
part of the film itself, that question. What are my lines? Who's, what's my character? I mean, the actress who's... Yes. Who, who, what, the actress playing his mother? Was she the one who played his mother? No, and that was the, the woman. How many scenes am I in? I mean, right. <laughs> oh, God. And again, I've known when I've been under pressure. Now, again, this is a subjective aspect. I know what it's like. Yeah, I'll give you an answer. As long as you give an answer, it doesn't make any difference. Right. Even though it might be the right answer. I've known that. Um well, no, a good director immediately would said, darling, I don't know how many it is, but it's so many to build your character and walk away and she's happy. Is that that's the job of a director. It's like a general making sure that the people are charged to go into battle. Well, what he does here in the film uh, is make people insecure. Right. How many scenes am I in? That kind of thing. Uh, but I, I, um, um, yeah, I, 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 I've been in his place, not as a film director, but in other situations. And so I, I, I sort of get it. That's why the uh, the character, um, with all of his ambiguities and stuff like that, yeah, I know this person, both good and bad. But that isn't that he nails a certain kind of way of behaving in such a precise way. Is again, he nails it subjective. I say, God, he 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 gets it. You know, whether it can be writer's block or director's block, creative block. Tima, you should be able to relate. I do. <laughs> uh, for Christ's sake, yes. And uh, it still wreaks uh, havoc with my ADHD, but I do. <laughs> and uh, well, this film just adds to the ADD kind of thing. Like, oh my God, uh, there's so much brilliance in this film. You know, one can say Abel Gonzalez Napoleon's a better film. I mean, you can do any of those things. Uh, but you know, this is I up love there. Napoleon. Well, yes, Napoleon well, it's, a, a, it's a very. Let's put it this way: you can't say it's the best. Anything is the best movie ever made. No, it's impossible. No, you can't, yeah. There's no such thing as the best movie ever made, and, and anybody who tries to tell you there is, they're wrong. Well, there's Frankenstein must be destroyed. That's true. That is true. <laughs> uh, the, and there is the worst movie ever made. No, you can't even do that either, <laughs> because people have favorite worst no. movies ever. No, Nine made. from Outer Space is not you, the worst movie ever made. No, that's, no, it's, it's too much fun. Not. Yes, too much fun. I did see something in the past year that competed with that though but uh i forget what it was not the room <laughs> uh, i never made it all the way through the room but uh, um but yeah that would be one but no i mean i think um what's great 35 it's what 55 years later mm -hmm. eight and a half still remains a challenging brilliant film i mean to, to most people it's like wow but you can also say this about birth of a nation uh there i can say about sunrise mm -hmm. uh they're, they're, Sunray, they're, yes. Sunrise. Casablanca. Yeah. Never, ever old. Or my favorite one that always looks like it was shot yesterday, which is Clockwork Orange. I thought that it will was always be I a thought film it was Robin Hood. Hmm? I thought Robin Hood was your favorite. Robin Hood is my favorite adventure movie. Adventure movie, okay. I mean, once again, see, I can't tell you my favorite movie. I can tell you my favorite action adventure movie. I, I can, can tell you my tell favorite you. movie. I can probably tell you my favorite samurai movie. You know, what's your favorite movie? I can tell movie? you my favorite movie. Uh, Carl Dreyer's The Day of Wrath. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a real toe-tapper, by the way. Yeah, I'm sure. It's, it's... I like Day of Wrath. But it's funny, one of my last conversations with Matt Green, because uh, he and I don't disagree, or disagree completely on um, Phantom Thread and Call Me By Your Name. And Matt will call me on my inability for aesthetic judgment. Uh, but So I said, Matt, do you like Gertrude? And uh, <laughs> and because uh, I know two people who think that's the greatest film ever made, 
I've been through Gertrude twice. It's just, I can't do it. I just can't do it at all. And uh, another drier film. I don't mm. think Gertrude is his best by any. There oh. are people who think who think Ordette is the greatest movie ever made. Now that's that, you know I can I can sort of buy to, uh, that. I can sort of buy that. I love Ordette. I like I like I like those. But again, it's like Tarkovsky's later films. Okay, they're 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 genius. They're boring. <laughs> the sense of exhilaration at an aesthetic experience. Uh, I don't get with Tarkovsky, and more with Dreyer. But there are people I do know. They're like a, there are two camps. They're the people who like love Bresson, Dreyer, Rossellini, and they're the camps that like Fellini, Bunuel, and Hitchcock. And I like some from each camp, though. I love Bunuel. I love Fellini. I love Dreyer. Bresson. Maybe you're more Catholic than I am. No, I'm. I'm. I'm a Buddhist, David. You should become a Buddhist. No, I um have zero interest in whether there is a higher power. It doesn't make any difference. As my father said to me, this is where part of what's even going on with the thing. The um, my father simply said, a man's immortality is in his children. Hmm. And, uh, and that's a very biological, scientific way of looking at it. <laughs> Sex and death. And so there, mm -hmm. whether it's biological or whether it's in the way that I, um, uh, I've loved teaching, uh, passing something on. Dream of every filmmaker. Of course. You make something. There's a legacy. It is a child, yes. A book is a child. A film is a child. A class yeah, of students is a child. That's why, that whole, that whole, that, that's why uh, when you get to this... You know, you get to the suicide scene here in Eight and a Half. Mm -hmm. He kills his child. He kills himself, and in killing himself, he's killing his child. The thing comes to an end. It just simply doesn't come from anything spiritual. It might come from the medium, but it's like, yes. And it, it's going to continue. And of course, the, the, the real answer is the film's there. We see right. it. We watched We're it the other it. night. We're watching it. And he actually convinced Lucia to actually join back in. <laughs> you know... Based Which I think is the cheat of the movie, but... Well, you may be right. Yeah, I think you're right about that. Uh, well, thank you, guys. I really appreciate this. Uh, it's fun well, talking about you. the film. Yeah, it's really good fun. I mean, God, we all know the film. We all we all like the film in, 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 in you know, varying degrees, but, it, you know, we know it's a great film. And it is a wonderfully... It is a fantasy film. I mean, it is a fantastic fantasy. And Fellini's Eight and a Half is available on a beautiful Blu-ray from Criterion. So uh, please pick it up. <laughs> there you go. Which we ate, which is what we saw on the screen. It's yeah, very, it looked very, very good. Wasn't it gorgeous? Yeah. yeah, yeah, totally. I was just all the context aside, just for me personally and my own relation to the film, just to see it that beautifully on a good size screen. Oh uh, wow! It was. A, separate all the context out of it just like i love to see oh my god this is a truly beautiful film it's still not quite film but it's damn close <laughs> close enough yeah i uh, won't get into i mean I, I i still as you know journey over to get to david cornfeld's 35 millimeter projections over there when he does 70 millimeter, i'll be there to be supportive of what he's doing and you know as you heard me say lots of times i'm really glad uh, that Eric transported us down to see Dirk Dunkirk. And yes, yeah, 70 uh, millimeter and everything. Down there. And, uh, yeah. but, so, but once again, a film of this value, of this complexity, 
is we're seeing a number of times and in various mediums because once again if you watch it on a little tiny screen at home where you're pushing your nose to it you'll see completely different things it's worth seeing many films that you like and would like to learn about or feel something for to see them a, a number of times and different ways well this is where the uh, uh, i'm sure certainly said shot by shot analysis even the thing i mentioned earlier about the uh, you know oh time number five i picked up on the uh, the displacement of the confessional booths okay right. on the other hand big screen the utter phantasmagoria of the film <sighs> like it, it, it just it's I've always liked, again, you know how I feel about it. I like the larger-than-life aspect of it. Okay.